Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.N. climate talks continue in Dubai today as nations seek to move away from oil and gas use. NPR's Julia Simon reports a record number of lobbyists for fossil fuels are also attending the talks. Nearly four times the amount of fossil fuel lobbyists were given access to the climate talks this year compared to last year. That's according to a new analysis from the Kick Big Polluters Out Coalition. The climate talks are already facing scrutiny for the huge platform they've given the oil industry. OPEC, the oil cartel, it has a pavilion. The president of the climate talks, Sultan Ahmed al-Jaber, he's also the CEO of the United Arab Emirates State Oil Company. Today, world leaders will discuss how to phase down or phase out planet-heating fossil fuels like coal, gas, and oil. Scientists say transitioning away from fossil fuels to cleaner energy like solar and wind can help the world avoid more catastrophic warming. Julia Simon, NPR News. The president of the climate talks has also been criticized for incorrectly claiming phasing out fossil fuels is not needed to avoid catastrophic global warming. Sultan al-Jaber says his remarks were taken out of context. Once again today, the Supreme Court is hearing a major case with facts that were not initially presented to the court. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports on the case involving taxes. Charles and Kathleen Moore are challenging a one-time tax on corporate income that was part of President Trump's massive corporate tax cut in 2017. They paid a single $15,000 tax on the earnings of an Indian company they invested in, and then they challenged the tax in court. Yes, they concede their initial $40,000 investment is now valued over a half million dollars, but because they got no dividends or other payments from the company, they say the tax is not on income and thus not authorized by the Constitution. Since the court agreed to hear the case, however, the publication Tax Notes has unearthed records indicating that Charles Moore was far more involved in the company than he claimed and that he has received some payments from the company in the form of high-level interest on loans. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Federal officials are helping police in a Virginia suburb of Washington, D.C. investigate a house explosion last night. Arlington County police say they responded to reports of shots fired in a house. These were later determined to be from a flare gun. Police say they then tried to serve a search warrant, but Arlington County police spokeswoman Ashley Savage says a person barricaded themselves indoors and more shots were fired. The suspect inside the residence uh, discharged several rounds. The house subsequently exploded. The house was flattened by the explosion. The status of the person who was inside is not known. It is also not known if anyone else was indoors. Police officers were not seriously injured. You're listening to NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. After weeks of delays, the state's supplemental budget is finally in place. Governor Healy signed the $3.1 billion measure yesterday, hours after it was approved by House and Senate lawmakers. The spending plan includes money for the state's emergency shelter system, flood recovery, and raises for some state workers. It had been delayed by fighting among Democrats over how the shelter money would be spent, and then it was was blocked by Republicans through parliamentary procedures. The state's highest court is considering a challenge to a ban on switchblades. The case, heard yesterday, involves a Boston man who was arrested in a domestic incident and was found carrying the weapon. He says it wasn't used in the alleged crime. At question is whether switchblades have the same protections as guns under the Second Amendment. Elizabeth Martino with the Suffolk District Attorney's Office says they should not. 
That's our primary contention is that it has not been shown to be a weapon in common use today for self-defense. Caitlin Gerber, representing the defendant, disagrees. I think we've provided sufficient evidence that it constitutes an arm for purposes of the Second Amendment. I don't believe it's a requirement that it be in common use today for purposes of self-defense. The state first banned switchblades from being carried in public in 1957. A ruling from the Supreme Judicial Court could take months. The Worcester City Council today considers a plan to lower the city's speed limit from 30 miles per hour to 25. The proposal would also create additional safety zones with 20 miles per hour limits. Advocates say the plan would help create safer streets. They point to data that shows slower speeds reduce the likelihood and severity of crashes. Animal experts say concerns over a respiratory illness in dogs shouldn't stop people from sending their dogs to a kennel or daycare. Aaron Doyle is the senior vice president of Animal Welfare and Veterinary Services at the Animal Rescue League of Boston. For dog owners whose dogs might be more susceptible, and those would be dogs that are very young or very elderly or have some sort of significant underlying disease, those are dogs where it is worth a conversation with your veterinarian. The still unidentified illness can cause coughs and cold-like symptoms in dogs. It has not become widespread in Massachusetts. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. The Celtics lost to the Pacers 122-112 to last night in Indianapolis and are out of the in-season tournament. The seas are now off until next week. Partly sunny today with a high near 40. Cloudy overnight with a chance for snow. Temperatures will be near 30. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a little more snow possible. Less than an inch expected east of 495 with pockets of a little more on the south shore. No accumulation west of It'll be in the mid-30s tomorrow. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com and Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy.
Good morning. We're in our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR, raising the money that brings you the news that upholds that beautiful democracy that Lauren Dern was talking about. We're in the final stretch. This ends at the end of the day on Wednesday, and we still have $218,000 to raise in order to end where we need to be to continue this important community service in the new year at the level you expect. We're reminding you to include WBUR in your year-end giving because you rely on us throughout the year for the news and companionship that keep you connected to your community and keeps your community informed at a time where it is so important to know what's going on with fast-changing news, like the situation in Gaza, so much more. I'm Rupa Shanoi, Morning Edition host here with Amory Sievertson, co-host of the Endless Thread podcast, and so much more. Good morning, Amory. It's so nice to see you. Good morning, Rupa. It's so nice to be here. And, you know, I've been thinking as I listen to Laura Dern, and I'm, I've been listening to you this morning talk about, you know, how we uh, get our news. And sometimes I think we think about the news as this other thing. You know, oh, I don't listen to the news, or I do listen to the news. The news is life. <laughs> the news is what's happening in our community. It's it's what informs how we go about our day. It's it's listening to other people's stories and experiences. It makes us more human. It makes us more connected. It makes us more grounded. You know that as a WBUR listener, but you especially know that because WBUR brings you the news in a way that you just don't hear anywhere else. We connect those dots and 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 we make it clear that, you know, the news, the way that we tell it, the way that we bring it to you. It's just life. It's just being together and moving through this world together. And, I love that. And WBUR, you know, put, gives you that context. And that's just so important. And that's what we're asking you to protect right now with your contribution. Listener support is it is the lifeblood of WBUR. And here's our CEO, Margaret Lowe, talking about why your support specifically is so important to us. WBUR and NPR will always be free. We're a public service. And this is especially relevant today because we now live in a world where only people who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources. And in my mind, that further divides the haves and have-nots. And in contrast, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. Sustaining members provide the support we need to make that possible and to ensure that we're here today and tomorrow and for generations to come to cover the most consequential issues of our time and to make Boston an even better place to live. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, they're talking about... Yeah, these are tough times. A lot of people can't give, but it's important for them to be informed, and that's what you can do for them, people in your community. We have $218,000 to raise. Think about what part of that you can give, and if it's $15 a month, you can pick up this Charles River, River Apparel Back Bay jacket. It has WBUR on it. It's, it's kind of heavy and hefty and really a piece of equipment that will protect you from the New England winters and it's just smart. It has a great cut to it and it makes you look good. So think about supporting WBUR. Think about the jacket and think about being part of your community by giving. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. How is Nikki Haley trying to stand out as she challenges Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. 
We'll hear one answer in a moment. We begin with a former U.S. ambassador who's been arrested as an agent of Cuba. Federal prosecutors allege that Victor Manuel Rocha worked for Cuba for decades. His initial court appearance yesterday was a startling turn in his long career. He served in several government posts relating to Latin America. NPR justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering his case. Ryan, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Who is he? So Rocha is 73 years old. He was born in Colombia, became a U.S. citizen in the late 70s, and a few years after that started working for the State Department. And he had a very successful career. He worked in various U.S. embassies in Central America in the 1980s. Uh, he served on the National Security Council in the mid-90s. He was actually the director of an office that's responsible for, among other things, Cuba. Hmm. Uh, he later served in a senior post for the U.S. interest section in Cuba and ultimately ended his career as a U.S. ambassador to Bolivia from 1999 to 2002. After he left the State Department, he went into the private sector. He worked as an advisor to the commander of the U.S. military Southern Command for several years. That command is responsible for, you may have guessed it, uh, Cuba, among other things. Okay. But prosecutors say that all that time, dating all the way back to 1981 and up to the present day, Rocha was also secretly working as an agent of the Cuban government. Wow. What are the charges that would illustrate that? Well, there are three charges in a criminal complaint against Rocha thus far. Uh, conspiracy to act as an agent of a foreign government, acting as an illegal agent of a foreign government, and uh, using a passport obtained by false statement. But here's how Attorney General Merrick Garland kind of summed up what prosecutors say Rocha was up to. The complaint alleges that Rocha sought out and used his positions within the United States government to support Cuba's clandestine intelligence gathering mission against the United States. Now, Garland only briefly talked about this case yesterday, but even in his limited remarks, he did give a sense of the magnitude of this case. Here he is again. This action exposes one of the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltrations of the U.S. government by a foreign agent. Okay, talked only briefly, so we don't have a good idea of what he did on a day-to-day basis over those 40 years, but how did the Justice Department catch him? Well, it's a, it's a good question as for how this went on as long as it did. But court papers say the FBI got a tip of some sort in 2022 that Rocha was working with Cuba's intelligence services. And so the FBI ran, in essence, a sting operation against him. Uh, a little over a year ago, an undercover FBI agent sent Rocha a text on WhatsApp saying that they had a message for him from his quote-unquote friends in Havana. Rocha ended up meeting the undercover agent three times. Uh, the FBI, of course, had Rocha under surveillance at this point, so they recorded all three of these meetings. Court papers include excerpts from them uh, in which Rocha makes incriminating statements about work that he says that he's done uh, at the direction of Cuban intelligence. He allegedly said that Cuban intelligence asked him to lead a normal life, and so he created a legend, which is intelligence lingo for a backstory of a right-wing person. Court papers say he bragged about what he'd done for Cuba, uh, and he allegedly told the undercover agent that he was still, at this point, dedicated to the Cuban cause. I, I want to understand this. A right-wing person, but also bragging about what he'd done for Cuba, meaning that in right. public he was like anti-Cuba, anti-communist, but privately he was bragging about what he was doing. Is that what you're saying? That's correct, yes. So when do we learn more about what he allegedly did? Well, he was in court yesterday. Prosecutors suggested in court that they are going to bring more charges in this case. A detention hearing is scheduled for tomorrow, so there may be more to learn in the days and weeks to come. NPR's Ryan Lucas, thanks so much. Thank you. In a primary that has been dominated from the beginning by former President Donald Trump, other Republican hopefuls have had to try to figure out how to stand out. For Nikki Haley, that has meant highlighting the traits that make her unique in the GOP field. 
As I set out on this new journey, I will simply say this. May the best woman win. As she announced her entry into the Republican primary in Charleston, South Carolina in February, Haley also talked about growing up as the daughter of Indian immigrants. And as NPR Sarah McCammon reports, Haley is walking a tightrope as a Republican campaigning on identity. At her campaign kickoff earlier this year, Nikki Haley promised to move the country forward. And it will require doing some things we've never done. As she made that promise, she explicitly referenced her gender. Like sending a tough-as-nails woman to the White House. On the campaign trail, Haley often speaks about being a wife and mother, while also touting her experience as a former United Nations ambassador and South Carolina governor. Haley is unapologetically a woman running for president, as she demonstrated in the third debate hosted by NBC News after rival Vivek Ramaswamy made a snarky reference to her gender. Or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? Haley shot back and doubled down on the feminine symbolism. Yes, I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. That pairing, the idea that I'm a woman, but I'm strong, and I'm strong, but I'm still a woman, has been central to Haley's story about herself. Here's Haley speaking last year in California about her book profiling female leaders, including former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, known as the Iron Lady. There's nothing wrong with Iron Ladies being feminine. There's nothing wrong with Iron Ladies being great wives and great moms. Haley talks about both her gender and her race in terms that align with traditional Republican ideas about America as a land of opportunity for everyone, those categories notwithstanding. As she campaigns, Haley has spoken about growing up in the only brown family in a small South Carolina town where everyone else was either black or white. But she says her family believed in what she calls the promise of America. This is not about identity politics. I don't believe in that. And I don't believe in glass ceilings either. I believe in creating a country where anyone can do anything and achieve their own American dream. That framing is no accident, says Mona Charon, policy editor at the conservative news site The Bulwark. The identity politics appeal um, has limits within the Republican primary. Sharon says Haley seems well aware of the inherent tension in reminding Republicans that she brings something different to their primary without leaning too hard on that messaging. So she is, she's, she's doing a little bit of that, send the woman to the White House, but she's also saying that she wants to be judged um, on her qualifications and not as a female candidate. So she's, she's trying to walk that tightrope, I think. Haley walks that tightrope in part by stressing both her domestic and foreign policy credentials. Her approach appeals to voters like Mary Mayville, who attended a Haley campaign event last month in Londonderry, New Hampshire. I really don't care. I've been around a lot of leaders that are really good as women, and I've been around a lot of leaders that are really good that happen to be men. What she cares a lot about is moving on from Trump and picking someone who can appeal to voters across the aisle. Mayville, who's an Air Force veteran, sees Haley as someone who can do that. And I want someone who's going to take my sister-in-law, who's on the other side of the aisle, who likes Nikki Haley, and she said, I actually would vote for her because of the way she brings people together. So that's what I want from my country. I fought for my country. You know, I served. I'm like, I want that for my country. I don't want this nonsense. Haley recently got a major funding boost from the Koch Network, an influential group of conservative donors who've called for an alternative to Trump. 
But with Haley still trailing far behind the frontrunner in Republican primary polls, she'd have to persuade many more voters in states like New Hampshire that she has the experience and the background needed to bring the party and the country together. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. So, Steve, a little personal, but did you get eight hours of sleep last night? What do you think? What do you think? I get up at three o'clock in the morning. No, I did not get eight hours of sleep last night. Anyway, that's what this job is like. True. Okay, well, don't worry. Duke University clinical psychologist Jessica Lunsford Avery says people do not have to worry so much about the amount of sleep they get. Instead, the focus should be on a regular sleep routine. If I go to bed around the same time every night, that's going to have health benefits for me. Cognitive benefits, mental health benefits. Her research shows that people who get seven hours or even six hours of sleep can still lead happy, healthy lives as long as they get about the same amount of sleep every night. Lauren Whitehurst is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Kentucky who studies sleep and health and warns against worrying about the eight-hour golden rule. Your body is really good at getting what it needs and desires. And so maybe you only need seven hours of sleep. And getting that seven hours of sleep at a regular time every day is going to optimize your ability to function in the world. There are a lot of factors that affect sleep, and a lot of people just can't hit that eight-hour standard. Your sleep duration could be more dictated by your kid's daycare schedule, or it might be more related to kind of your own personal parenting practices and what your routine looks like or your work schedule. So figure out your schedule and also figure out what kind of a person you are. You a night owl? You a morning lark? Either way, stick to a schedule. Regardless of whether you're more of a lark or more of an owl, if your patterns are consistent from day to day, then that increases the health benefits. But you still need to get a decent amount of sleep. Three or four hours a night won't cut it. Here's Lauren Whitehurst again. Your body cycles at night through a variety of different sleep stages. And if you're truncating your sleep and only getting about four hours, you're not going to get all of the sleep that you need. And you will lose out even more if you worry about your lack of sleep. Stressing out about it is going to make either of those things more difficult. Some advice to sleep on whenever we actually get some sleep, Steve. I'm going to go take a nap. Yeah. I can't get no sleep. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBMR. Coming up in 15 minutes, one month after Boston dismantled an encampment at the area known as Mass and Cass, our reporter Deborah Becker goes looking for where people who had sheltered there have ended up. It's 725. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, now offering gift memberships. Give a year of art and inspiration while also providing vital support to the museum. ICABoston.org. And Lake Champlain Chocolates. 
celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. In times of crises, journalism plays a vital role. I'm Lisa Mullins. At WBUR and NPR, our job is to ferret out the facts and report the fullest version of the truth possible, challenge assumptions, hold officials to account, bear witness, and tell the stories of those with the most at stake. We can't do our job without your help. Make your year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. We're in the home stretch of our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR. It ends tomorrow, and we still have $216,000 to raise. If you've been listening, you're noticing that that number is going down because we are chipping away at it because you are acting, you are listening, and you are acting, and we are so grateful. This number... $216,000. It is so doable because it is something we are going to do together. And when we do things together, it is a community effort for this community service to keep WBUR going. When you support WBUR, you are fighting back against misinformation and supporting a source of unbiased, balanced news that informs your community. You know how important that is. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here this morning with Amory Sievertson of our podcast team. Good morning, Rupa. Yes, $216,000 left. So all we're asking right now is what part of that can you can you take off of our plate? Can you give $10 a month or $20 a month to WBUR? Can you make a, a one-time larger gift of maybe $500 or $1,000? When we come together, we can do this. This is doable. But we need to hear from you right now because, you know, it's the end of the year. This is the time when we all kind of take stock of, of our budgets, of the organizations that matter to us of the people that matter to us. And we know WBUR matters to you because you're listening right now. Maybe you listen every single morning. This is how we start your day. This is how we get you through the day. You end your day with WBUR. Whatever your commitment to WBUR is, put a dollar amount to it. Help us finish the year strong and know that, you know, we can continue to have your back in 2024 and hopefully far beyond that. So be there for us. Join the community of listeners that has made everything that you've heard on WBUR so far today possible and yesterday and the day before that. Mm -hmm. That's right. Everything you hear was paid for by other listeners who stepped up and did their part. So what is yours right now? Any dollar amount that feels right to you will have an impact for us, and we so appreciate it. So call 1-800- 909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Yeah, any amount will help us. We'll be grateful for whatever you can give. As long as we see this number going down, we will feel like we are getting where we need to be so we can end this fundraiser at the level of funds that we need in order to keep bringing you the news that you expect. And think about what's coming, like the presidential election, division on Beacon Hill, division in Congress, and then there's, you know, the war in Ukraine and and the war between Israel and Hamas. It's tough stuff that you want to keep 
abreast of, but also we bring you the lightness, the joy. There was a, we had a great segment about the Kennedy Center honors yesterday, and then there was some awesome Beyonce music and about the kind of matchup brewing between Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Um, oh so, boy! Yeah, we don't we don't touch in, uh, issues that controversial though. <laughs> <laughs> so think about what we bring you every day, how we are your companion every day, and give. Go to wbur.org or call one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. And you don't need incentives to give, but we've got them. We've got the thank you gifts because we love saying thank you when you give. $15 a month you can get this amazing jacket. They call it they say it's a blue jacket. I yeah, it's kind of on the gray side. No, it's but, blue. Everyone okay. it's blue. Right. It's bluish gray. Okay. I grant you. All right. Yes. It's from Charles River Apparel. It is very hefty and it it's something that's wind and water resistant with a full zip and a mock neck collar. It is smart. It is cut in a way that will make you look good. It will also protect you from the elements that we know are coming this New England winter. So and and it comes in both men's and women's sizes, but you need to act before this, you know, your size runs out because that happens to me all the time and we need you to act to help us bring this 216 number down. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much for your support. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port. Destination-focused dining and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military says it continues to alert civilians in Gaza to neighborhoods it's targeting to try to limit casualties in its war with Hamas. Civilians say they're running out of places to go in northern and southern Gaza as Israel expands the fighting. Gada Al-Kord says she's lost family members in the Israeli airstrikes. I lost my brother with, with his wife and his daughter, his only daughter. And they're still under the rubble. We couldn't bring them out. She was speaking to the BBC. The war between Israel and Hamas has spread to the Red Sea. That's where several commercial ships came under fire from Houthi rebels on Sunday. The rebels are backed by Iran and control much of Yemen. NPR's Joe Hernandez says the U.S. Navy fired back. It's not the first time the Houthis have targeted ships in the Red Sea, nor is it the first time they've targeted U.S. naval vessels. In 2016, missiles were fired from coastal Yemen toward a U.S. Navy destroyer twice in four days, and the U.S. responded at that time by firing missiles of its own at three radar installations in Houthi territory, and that stopped the Houthis from targeting American ships for several years. But it's unclear if a similar U.S. response today would have the same effect. President Biden travels to Massachusetts today for three campaign fundraisers in and around Boston. This is NPR News.
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The presidents of Harvard and MIT will be on Capitol Hill today. They'll answer questions about how their schools responded to student protests over the war between Israel and Hamas. WBUR's Max Larkin explains the hearing was called by Republicans on the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. The central allegation from House leadership here is that these presidents of these schools in particular stood by while, quote, anti-Semitic demonstrations took place at their school since October 7th. Chairwoman Virginia Fox of North Carolina said in a press release that leaders like Claudine Gay of Harvard and Sally Kornbluth of MIT offered, quote, indecision and milquetoast statements instead of strong action. The president of the University of Pennsylvania will also testify today. A judge will soon decide whether a private meeting between the state treasurer and the chair of the State Cannabis Control Commission can happen today as planned. Commission Chair Shannon O'Brien was suspended from her post three months ago. Treasurer Deborah Goldberg says that was a result of racially and culturally insensitive statements made by O'Brien. O'Brien is requesting today's meeting be delayed so she has more time to prepare. Medford is the latest community in the state to require its police officers to wear body cameras while on duty. More than 30 officers in the department began wearing the devices yesterday. The rest of Medford's officers will be equipped with cameras by next month. City officials say the cameras will improve public trust and help with officer training and evaluation. It's 7:34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Kaiba providing technology solutions to government agencies in the health and human services space. Kaiba, K-Y-Y-B-A dot com. The Celtics are out of the NBA's new in-season tournament. They lost to the Pacers last night, 122 to 112 in Indianapolis. Near 40 today and partly cloudy, around 30 tonight, and there's a chance of less than an inch of snow overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy in mid-30s. Pockets of the South Shore and areas east of 495 may see a little more snow. Less than an inch is expected. It's 36 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. On Capitol Hill, there is a new push for an old idea, a commission to slash the country's debt, which has topped $33 trillion. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh sat down with a bipartisan duo in the House who say they cannot wait any longer to act. California Democrat Scott Peters is blunt. The Congressional Budget Office says Social Security will run out of money in a decade, and a 23% cut is looming. We just can't wait any longer. The closer we get to that insolvency date, the more certain it is that benefits will be cut and the more expensive it will be to remedy that. He says right now the government is paying more on interest on the debt than on Medicaid. That means less to invest in things like education and national defense. Michigan Republican Bill Heisinger says his own colleagues are ignoring the problem. 
There are some folks here who I lovingly call debt deniers, right? I mean, they kind of have this notion of, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll be able to either print our way out of it or it doesn't really matter what we borrow. But he thinks his constituents get the real consequences of piling up debt, like cuts in retirement checks and Medicare benefits. I think there is a greater understanding of what's at stake for future generations. They want to create a bipartisan debt commission, made up of lawmakers and outside experts to craft a plan to fix the debt, a plan that Congress would have to vote on after the 2024 election. But the last time a bipartisan debt commission tried this, in 2010, it failed to even agree on a plan. NPR pressed the lawmakers about the fact President Biden, who Peters endorsed, and former President Trump, who Heisinger backs, say changes to Social Security are off the table. Doesn't that just make it so much harder when the leaders of both parties just don't want to deal with this issue at all? They can be wrong. (laughs) Are they wrong? Yes, they're wrong. Peters waves off the idea that touching Social Security is political dynamite. To give people this impression that if we do nothing that's good for Social Security, it's wrong. Social Security is, is in the hospital. It needs care. Both say all ideas need to be on the table, the same ones that previous commissions held up. A menu of tax hikes, increasing the retirement age, cutting spending on health care and defense. Heisinger, who's in his 50s, is thinking of people his age, who may be counting on getting $1,000 a month from Social Security, but will be getting hundreds less if nothing changes. Let's have the courage to at least have the conversation and give people, the voters, a benefit of the doubt that we can go in and have their best interest on both sides of the aisle to make sure that uh, there is a vital safety net there. Senate leaders haven't weighed in, but the two people leading the effort there, Utah Republican Mitt Romney and West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, are both retiring. Some say it's Congress's job to deal with the debt, not a commission. Romney says lawmakers would still be the ones responsible for a solution. We all lived in the shadow of the greatest generation. If we don't fix this problem, we're going to be known as the worst generation. The White House told NPR if a commission became a Trojan horse to slash Medicare or Social Security, they would oppose it. Manchin rips that argument. Trojan my butt. I mean, I'm so sick and tired of hearing this Trojan stuff from whatever side of the administration or whatever side of any political party. Peter says they don't need to be scared by past failures. It would so help the credibility of Congress for us to do this on a serious issue. And Heisinger says the country can't afford to wait. If we can't get that home run, I would love to get the home run, but let's have progress. Top House Republicans say a bill to create the debt commission could be added to a must-pass spending bill in January. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. It's been one month since an ordinance went into effect in Boston, allowing police to clear tents from a large encampment in the area known as Mass and Cass. The encampment is gone, but many say those who are homeless are shuffling from one city block to another. WBUR's Deborah Becker recently visited the area and filed this report. At the site of the former encampment on Atkinson Street, it's empty. The sidewalks are barricaded off so tents don't return and so people don't gather. But just a few blocks away, about two dozen people are congregating in front of the A-Hope Needle Exchange Program, one of the few places still offering services for substance use disorder and mental health treatment. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. 
A Boston Public Health Commission public safety officer is telling people to move from the front steps to the sidewalk. Sir, let's go, let's go, let's go. Linda Wynn visits often because she knows many of the staff and clients. She's among those asked to move. So where are you supposed to go? Everybody's just going to walk around and see what they can do. Find a place to go, stay warm or whatever. And so you just move around? No, they were up from one end to the other. It's like moving cattle. They treat us like cattle. It's, it's ugly. Inside, the needle exchange program waiting room is crowded. People are getting supplies like alcohol wipes and wound care kits. There are snacks and hygiene products, and it's a place to get out of the cold. 29-year-old Aiden Chick stays in a nearby shelter but often comes to the program. The police have been nonstop harassing everybody. We have spent since pretty much since 9 a.m. to the end of the day moving every 20 minutes from the five spots that everybody goes to over and over and over and over and over and over again. Like, it feels like there's a battle right now where it's like, who's going to tire out first? Some advocates for people who are unhoused say their clients tell them similar things. Abigail Judge, co-founder of Boston Human Exploitation and Trafficking, says her organization still works with about 50 women who frequented the encampment. Judge says these clients are in constant fear of being arrested. I think what people don't understand is just because people are dispersed and tents are removed, individuals at a certain level of care have not suddenly become more motivated to recover. Boston police have made 67 arrests since the ordinance took effect on November 1st. The city says most involved people who had outstanding warrants from other court cases. The city also said, in partnership with the Suffolk County Sheriff, those arrested in the Mass and Cass area have been booked and held for arraignment at the Suffolk County Jail. And on WBUR's Radio Boston last week, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu said more than 100 people have been sheltered since the encampment was cleared and police are working with multiple agencies to help those still on the streets. The conversation is much more, how do we get you to where you could be safe, warm, and have what you need? That has been happening all across the city, and we continue to find success in connecting people to services. The Newmarket Business Association, which represents businesses in the area, is pleased that the streets have been open for the past month. The association's executive director, Sue Sullivan, says police are trying to prevent the drug dealing and violence that was common in the encampment. The police will come and disperse people. They also will check for warrants and and see who, you know, is causing the problem out there. What they're looking at is trying to disrupt the drug trade. A Boston Police Mobile Command Unit was removed from the area last week. The city says police will continue to have increased staff there. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. At the top of the hour, how the U.S. is responding to attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. It's 744. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com.
I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You just heard it there from Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Journalism is suffering everywhere. Organizations are disappearing. And amidst that, you have kept WBUR going. You have built us up and you have made sure that this community is well informed. This is when we come back to you and say that this is an ongoing effort and we need your help to keep WBUR at the level you expect for your future. So we are in our year-end fundraiser here at WBUR. The end is in sight. It's uh, tomorrow, but we still have to raise $216,000, and we need your help to get there. And you can double your gift to get us twice as far toward that goal right now because members of our Moral Society have stepped up with a dollar-for-dollar match, but only until 8 this morning. That's just under 15 minutes away, so you need to act fast. Fast. It's going to feel so great when we get to this goal because we can all feel good about achieving it when we do it together. I'm Rupa Shanoi, Morning Edition host, here with Amory Sievertson from our podcast team. Good morning, Amory. Good morning, Rupa. And, you know, I feel like there is a um, a trend I've seen on social media, more so this year than, than any other, a meme, if you will, of people <laughs> saying, I just did that thing that I've been putting off for months and months and months, and it took me two minutes. <laughs> and um, and this might be that for you. Supporting WBUR might be that for you. You may have been meaning to do this for a while, but here we are at the end of 2023 with a dollar-for-dollar dollar match on the table just for the next 14 minutes. So I'm here to tell you, yes, it really will take two minutes. It will be a load off your mind, and it will be a load off of our minds <laughs> because a public radio station really is only as strong as the memory behind it because you make up the majority of the funding that makes everything that you hear possible. Everything that you've already heard this morning was was made possible by other members who stepped up. And so now when we have this generous group of listeners from our Murrow Society, these are people who can give a little bit more. They've done that to encourage you to do your part. So 13 minutes to go here. What is that part? Can you do you know, $15 a month for WBUR. It will become $30. Also, you'll get this WBUR jacket, which I can't wait to tell you more about. But <laughs> but let's stay on this for a minute, because if you give a larger gift as well, if you can give, say, $200 right now to WBUR, it will become $400 just because you made that gift right now before 8 o'clock. So call one 800 909-9287. Go to WBUR.org. It really does just take a couple of minutes. And that will be one huge thing for you and even bigger for us that you can cross off your list. Okay, I'm going to reiterate the match really quick so and then get back to Amory so she can talk about the jacket because she's oh, very eager you. to talk about the jacket. Yes. Okay, dollar for dollar match. Whatever you give will be doubled. Again, as Amory said, that's $10 becomes 20, 20 becomes 40 a month, 40 becomes 80 a month. That is a huge impact for WBUR and 
it gets us closer to reducing this 216,000 number that we need to get down in order to end this fundraiser where we need to be to bring you all the news and analysis and conversation and stories that you depend on because WBUR is one of the essentials in your life. It is it is here for you every single morning, every single day, because thousands of listeners have given money voluntarily over the past several decades. And again, I'll say it again. Listeners make up the largest share of WBUR's funding. So we're asking you to start a monthly contribution right now. We only have about less than two minutes to get in on this match. We need you to do your part because our future is not guaranteed. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, we're running out of time for the match. I'm running out of time to tell you about this jacket, but I'm going to do it anyway. A WBUR warm, waterproof, Wind, water and wind resistant jacket can be yours for $15 a month. It becomes $30 a month for WBUR instantly just because you made that gift right now in the next 11 minutes. Have your money go twice as far. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Provider Group, an insurance, brokerage, and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com, and Gore Place with Jane Austen Holiday Tea, Sweet Tea with Scones, Cakes, and Chocolates in the decorated 1806 Mansion, December 17th, goreplace.org. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour day, December 9th, neiacademy.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Ten years ago today, the world lost one of its towering moral and political figures, Nelson Mandela, who died at the age of 95. For a time, he was the world's most famous political prisoner who would go on to become president of South Africa and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. NPR's Ashley Montgomery looked back at some of the moments that made Mandela a human rights icon. It's April 20th, 1964, in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa. A 45-year-old activist named Nelson Mandela stands before a court and delivers an impassioned speech about a brutal system of legalized racism. Whites tend to regard Africans as a separate breed. This is apartheid South Africa where the white minority dominates every aspect of life through systematic discrimination against the black majority. Mandela was a part of the African National Congress, a leading group that advocated for black rights. It's considered the oldest liberation movement in Africa, and Mandela was a member of its armed wing. He was arrested in 1962 and charged with sabotage and conspiracy to overthrow the state. The Ravonia trial speech was part of his defense. Wanted to be paid a living wage. Mandela speaks for nearly four hours about the harsh restrictions of living under apartheid. It's these words in this courtroom that help solidify Nelson Mandela as the most prominent figure of the anti-apartheid movement. His most famous line comes at the very end. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society. But my lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. 
Less than two months after his speech, Mandela is convicted and sent to Robben Island Prison off Cape Town. He's sentenced to life and becomes the most famous political prisoner in the world. For years, he's kept in a tiny seven-foot by nine-foot jail cell, an area smaller than a parking space. He does hard labor by day, crushing stones into gravel in a limestone quarry. Mandela writes letters about civil disobedience and pursues a University of London degree. The white government does not allow photos of Mandela or recordings of his voice. Yet his stature continues to grow while he remains behind bars. Finally, in 1990, Mandela is freed after 27 years in prison. I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom for all. Mandela gives his first public address just hours after he is freed. He stands on the balcony of Cape Town's City Hall, looking over a jam-packed crowd of over 100,000 Black South Africans. Mandela's hair is graying, and he's wearing his wife's large, oversized reading glasses because he accidentally left his behind at the prison. We have waited too long for our freedom. In addition to Mandela's release, the white government announces a package of reforms that include lifting the ban on the African National Congress and other Black groups. Mandela leads the negotiations with the government, and the pillars of apartheid begin to crumble. Finally, in 1994, South Africa holds its first democratic election. NPR covered the news. Nelson Mandela is now the president of South Africa. Nelson Mandela was sworn in as president of South Africa today. The country's first black president. Welcome our brand new state president, Nelson Mandela! He supports social and economic equality and immediately restores the country's international standing. This is from Mandela's inaugural address. The sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. Today, there's still a wide economic gap between Black and white South Africans. And the country has one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. Many South Africans still turn to Mandela's message. In his final presidential address to the South African Parliament in March 1999, Mandela reflects on his country's fight for racial justice and reconciliation. I am the product of the people of the world who have cherished the vision of a better life for all people everywhere. Ashley Montgomery, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes, how the U.S. is responding to attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. I'm sorry, that was the wrong one. Here is the right one. A new study shows that for many people of color in this country, a visit to the doctor means being extra careful about their appearance because they worry about being treated fairly during the appointment. It's 7.55. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. 
and the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Millions of people depend on the NPR network. We depend on you. Your support is central to our journalistic integrity. Donate to this station today, and thank you. We're in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR's Morning Edition, and there is only five minutes left in a dollar-for-dollar match that is only available until 8, so I guess it's less than five minutes now, around four minutes or it's only available until 8 until or until we raise $5,000, whichever comes first. It only takes a minute to give to WBUR, so you can absolutely take advantage of this incredible opportunity. It will mean so much to WBUR. We are closing in on our goal. We have $216,000 to go. We are chipping away at it with your help. You guys are responding, and we are so grateful. We still have a ways to go, so we are acting you to asking you to act now when you can double your impact. Think about how much we help you make sense of the world and your neighborhood every single day. We are the fabric of your day. This is when we come back to you to ask you to do your part in making sure this service continues. And because you care about impact, we know this dollar-for-dollar match will mean a lot to you, but only when you give right now. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Amory. Siebertson of our podcast team. Good morning, Rupa. Yeah, and because, you know, we just have a a couple minutes left here of the match and we have a limit on how much matching money we have, now's a great time if you can make a larger gift right now. We encourage you to do so because if you give $1,000, it will become $2,000. It will be matched dollar for dollar. And that's a huge impact for WBUR. It helps us chip away at that $215,000 number. Um, And it it gives you the, the peace of mind and us the peace of mind of knowing that WBUR is protected. We are protected from, you know, the, the the dwindling local journalism sources that we're hearing about around the country. It, it is a hard time for a lot of us. And so if you can do more like these members of our Murrow Society that have put this match on the table, please do, because it's too important uh, that WBUR be here for you. And you know what? We have we have hundreds of little choices that we're faced with every single day, whether it's, you know, whether we hold the door for the person behind us or we step up and support our public radio station in a time like this with two minutes left and a match on the table. And it matters which one you choose. It matters that that you choose to support your public radio station and, and give it to yourself and to the whole community that counts on it. So can you give maybe $20 a month right now to WBUR? It becomes $40 a month. Can you give $500. It will become $1,000 for WBUR because you did it right now. You made the choice to pick up the phone and pause your day for a moment to give back to WBUR by calling one 800 909 or making that gift online at WBUR.org. One minute to go. We need you now. We are down to $215,000. You guys are responding, and thank you so much. It means so much to us. We have $215,000 to go, and there is a minute left on this match. Whatever you give will be doubled, so you will double your impact for WBUR. You will get us twice as far toward this goal. 
We know so much of what you say, Emery, really resonates with me so much. These are really challenging times. It's so much seems to be going on that's really troubling and it makes you feel better. It it really we want to do good in the world. This is a way, an easy way to do good in the world and have an impact at a time when it feels like there's so little we can do to make the world better. This is what you can do. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and get in on this dollar for dollar match. Do as much as you can for WBUR. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morgan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. This is the 60th day of the war between Israel and Hamas. The Israeli military is widening its ground offensive in northern and central Gaza. Israeli troops moved into a major refugee camp for the first time seeking militants. Hamas is still believed to be holding nearly 140 hostages. One of them is Romy Gonen. Her mother, Mirev Lashern Gonen, says international organizations should speak up for hostages, especially kidnapped women. The humanitarian organization, uh, the women organization around the world, social organization have not yet spoken enough on behalf of the women that are in Gaza now. We need more voices. Their voices cannot be heard since they are, you know, underground, in houses, uh, in captivity. They cannot talk. She spoke to CNN. The administrator of USAID, Samantha Power, is in Egypt. She's visiting the hub where international relief aid is being directed to go into Gaza. Her agency says she came with 36,000 pounds of food assistance and medical supplies. House Republicans are planning to hold a vote to officially launch an an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports the action, potentially as early as this week, follows pressure from far-right lawmakers. House Speaker Mike Johnson says witnesses are stonewalling House committees, and he told Fox News this weekend that formally approving an impeachment inquiry is, quote, a necessary step. Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan says putting the House on record helps their legal strategy. If you have a vote of the full House of Representatives and a majority say we're in that official status as part of our overall oversight work, it just helps us in court. Earlier this year, moderate House Republicans opposed moving forward on impeachment without evidence of specific crimes. In September, then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy skipped a vote and directed three committees to investigate the president and his family. Johnson is predicting he will get the votes to approve a resolution. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. A former U.S. ambassador has been charged with being a clandestine agent of the Cuban government. Prosecutors say Victor Rocha secretly worked for Cuba for more than 40 years. 
NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. Rocha worked for the U.S. State Department for some two decades, rising up through the ranks to eventually serve as the U.S. ambassador to Bolivia in the early 2000s. He later worked in the private sector and as an advisor to the U.S. military Southern Command. But prosecutors say that dating back to 1981 and up to the present day, Rocha was also secretly working as a clandestine agent for the Cuban government. Court papers say that after the FBI learned of Rocha's alleged ties to Cuba, an undercover agent posing as a Cuban intelligence contact had meetings with Rocha, all of which were recorded by the FBI. Rocha faces several charges, including acting as an illegal agent of a foreign government. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. It's NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Governor Healy has signed a $3 billion supplemental budget into law. The spending plan is weeks late following intra-party fighting and political gamesmanship. It includes $250 million for the family shelter system and requires the state to create a new overflow site for people on the wait list. Kelly Turley is the associate director of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. As of last week, there were more than 100 families on the waiting list. And so this supplemental budget and the funds that it will provide to expand access to shelter and resources for families experiencing homelessness are so important. The budget also includes raises for some state workers and money for disaster aid from last summer's floods. Developers can now build more housing around the MBTA stations in Newton. The city council approved zoning changes yesterday. It allows more than 8,000 new housing units to be built in six of the city's 13 villages. The approval is due to a state law that requires some cities to allow for more housing near transit centers. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering tightening restrictions on children's car seats. One measure would require all infants and toddlers under two or weighing less than 30 pounds to be restrained in a rear-facing seat. Art Kinsman with the National Highway Safety Traffic Administration spoke in favor of the legislation at a hearing yesterday. It's extremely important to reflect the best practice in the statute because parents really do respond to that and they really do look for that. And also, I think police officers, fire, doctors, nurses, all those touch points that parents have to learn, they can point to that. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends young children ride in a rear-facing seat as long as possible, which could be up to age four. Congresswoman Lori Trahan is sharing her vision for her new leadership role. She was elected by her colleagues last week to serve as co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. That role is responsible for uniting House Democrats around shared messaging. She told WBUR's Radio Boston that the role is especially important heading into the 2024 election. My job in this role is to bridge that gap, to make sure every American understands that when President Biden is working with House Democrats and explaining that to young voters in particular, that these policies are going to help them. She says those policies include climate legislation, prescription drug benefits, and protecting reproductive health care. It's 8.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The Celtics fell to the Pacers last night 122-112 to in Indianapolis. The loss knocks Boston out of the in-season tournament. Partly sunny today with a high near 40. Cloudy overnight with a chance for snow. Temperatures will be near 30. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a little more snow possible. Less than an inch is expected east of 495 with pockets of a little more on the south shore. No accumulation west of 495. It'll be in the mid-30s tomorrow. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. At NPR and this station, editorial integrity is non-negotiable. Your support ensures that our journalism remains independent. Stand with us and donate right now. Good morning. It's a Tuesday morning on WBUR, and you are starting your day off right because you are listening to Morning Edition, as you always do, because we are your dependable companion and source of news absolutely every single morning when you are getting ready for your day. We are coming back to you today as part of our year-end fundraiser and saying we have 210 thousand dollars left to go to get to our goal that we need to get to by the end of the day tomorrow when this fundraiser ends. I love times like these because we can very literally see what we can do together in real time because this number is going down. You are getting us to this goal. Listeners are acting right now to show their support of WBUR. Join them and see this goal, see this number go down and see we can what we can do together in real time. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy here with Amory Sievertson from our podcast team. Rupa, I love hearing you fired up. It gets me <laughs> fired up. And, and you're so right. We can do this together. All you have to do is think about what your part of that is, whether it's $10 a month, uh, $1,000, maybe you can make a larger gift right now. You know what you're paying to support. You know what you're paying to protect, which is fact-based quality journalism uh, with, you know, which for a story like the one that we've been covering since October 7th, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, you know how important that is. The best way to combat misinformation is to perpetuate good information, is to support the, the stations like WBUR that are telling you, like it is that are that are telling you what you need to know and and bringing you the perspective that you really don't hear anywhere else. So our CEO Margaret Lowe was recently talking about this, talking about when you have a story um, this big and and you know this large and an international story that's happening really thousands of miles away. There's so many local implications, and and here she is talking about that a little bit. This conflict is resonating in so many corners of the country and the world and definitely here in Boston. And we need to tell those stories, too, like 
the story of that Medway family that was trapped in Gaza for 27 days and finally got out through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. We've covered demonstrations in support of Israel, demonstrations in support of Palestinians. We've covered the strains at Harvard as the university tries to address the deep tensions that have flared since October 7th. We visited a coffee shop in Cambridge where people come together for comfort and conversation. We've talked to a poet trying to find common ground. Lots of people here have deep ties to the region, so this all feels very real and very relevant and quite raw. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, there, she actually made those comments in an interview with me that kicked off this fundraiser. And I'm always honored to be able to do those interviews with her because it's really important that you hear directly from our leadership about how thoughtful we are and how careful we are about how we care, we cover these issues. It's not just that we bring you these news, this news. It's the the meticulousness that we put into the the preparation of this news. Like we care about being balanced. We care about being unbiased. And we hold ourselves to a very high standard because we expect you to hold us to that standard. You depend on us for important news like the war between Israel and Hamas. Also locally, news that after several delays Governor Healy has signed the state's supplemental budget, releasing crucial money for the state's strange, um, strained emergency shelter system. These are things that you want to know, and we bring them to you every morning, but they need your support. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And when you give $15 a month, right now you can get this jacket from Charles River Apparel. It is smart. It is blue, even though I think see it more as gray. Amory <laughs> disagrees, but it is And hefty. I'm here to fact check Rupa and say that it is bluish gray. So I will hand <laughs> off to Amory so she can talk. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Yep, it's wind and water resistant, but it has this nice soft layer on the inside. So it's going to keep you warm. You can layer it. It can be an outer shell. It can be all you need on a depending on the weather. And it's yours for $15 a month to WBUR right now. Or you can give it to a friend. We won't tell. 1-800-909-9287 WBUR.org. Thank you so much. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com and Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com and Weston Nurseries, tis the season to visit for holiday trees, greens, ornaments, and home decor. Hingham, Hopkinton, and Chelmsford, or online at westonnurseries.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Some people feel their doctors treat them differently based on who they are. A survey confirms how widespread their feeling is, as we will hear in a moment. We begin with the low-level expansion of the war between Israel and Hamas. Allies of Hamas have used rockets and drones in several parts of the region in recent weeks, and that includes the waters of the Red Sea. In an incident last weekend, an armed group that controls much of nearby Yemen fired on passing commercial ships. The U.S. Navy, which protects them, has fired back. Now, Yemen's Houthi rebels count themselves as allies of Hamas and enemies of Israel, but is there more to their involvement? NPR's Joe Hernandez is following the story. 
the Houthis say they're attacking ships with links to Israel, but one expert I spoke to about this also says the Houthis feel emboldened right now to carry out these kinds of attacks. The group overthrew Yemen's government in 2014 and in the years since then has managed to withstand this outside military intervention led by Saudi Arabia, which, of course, is a rival to Iran. Mm -hmm. So the Houthis now feel like they're in a position to grow from a domestic power to a regional one. Thomas Juno is a professor at the University of Ottawa. He studies the Middle East, and here's how he put it to me. When the Gaza war started in early October, to me, it was a matter of time before the Houthis would become involved militarily. Juno says there are a couple other reasons for these attacks from the Houthis. One is they send a message of support to Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. And the other is that it helps them gain favor at home in Yemen, where he says there's wide support for the Palestinian cause and opposition to Israel. Okay, so what happened in this most recent incident? Well, the U.S. Central Command reported that the Houthis attacked three vessels over several hours on Sunday, apparently using both ballistic missiles and drones. The naval destroyer, the USS Kearney, was on patrol in the area at the time and responded to several of the attacks, in some cases shooting down several Houthi drones. In a statement, CENTCOM said the attacks were, quote, fully enabled by Iran and that the U.S. would consider, quote, all appropriate responses in full coordination with its international allies and partners. And a Houthi military spokesman did take credit for attacking two of the ships, according to the Associated Press. Okay, you said all appropriate responses. Other than shooting down incoming projectiles, what can the United States do about this? Well, it's unclear. It's not the first time the Houthis have targeted ships in the Red Sea, nor is it the first time they've targeted U.S. naval vessels. In 2016, missiles were fired from coastal Yemen toward a U.S. Navy destroyer twice in four days, and the U.S. responded at that time by firing missiles of its own at three radar installations in Houthi territory, and that stopped the Houthis from targeting American ships for several years. Hmm. But Thomas Juno says it's unclear if a similar U.S. response today would have the same effect. Can the U.S. Uh, reestablish a form of, of mutual deterrence uh, in the Red Sea with the Houthis? It will be much more difficult to do that today than in 2016, because the Houthis are far more powerful now than they were before, and they feel much more emboldened. So what he says does seem clear is that the U.S. and Iran don't want any direct escalations with each other. And I should add that other Iran-backed militant groups have carried out some attacks on U.S. forces, but they've mostly been on a smaller scale, and the U.S. has responded with limited airstrikes. And Pierce Joe Hernandez, thanks so much. You're welcome. Now we're going to meet a doctor who has served in both Israeli and Palestinian hospitals, delivering babies and working with families on both sides of the conflict. He is also an outspoken advocate for peace who says there is no military solution to the dispute between Israelis and Palestinians. None of this has spared him or his family terrible tragedies, including a profound loss in this latest war. NPR's Greg Myrie has his story. Dr. Izzeldin Abu Laish initially gained prominence in the 1990s as the first Palestinian doctor appointed to work in an Israeli hospital, paving the way for others. If you go to any hospital, you will see Palestinian doctors, Israelis, nurses, patients, all of them are equal inside the hospital. I first met Abu Laish in 2001 in southern Israel, in the desert town of Beersheba, where he straddled two worlds. During the week, he worked and lived at an Israeli hospital, where he specialized in fertility medicine. 
On weekends, he drove a short distance home to the Gaza Strip to be with his wife and eight children in the Jabalia refugee camp. His aim, then and now, is the same. I want to equalize between Palestinians and Israelis, not someone superior to the other. No one will accept others to be superior to them. But heavy fighting in the early 2000s led to an Israeli clampdown on Gaza, and eventually Abu Laish was unable to enter Israel to work. Then came a terrible loss in 2008 when his wife died of leukemia. Less than a year later, he suffered another devastating blow that played out live on Israeli television. During intense Israel-Hamas fighting, Israel's Channel 10 television station called him regularly for an update from Gaza, which he delivered in fluent Hebrew. One evening, he was about to go on air when an Israeli tank shell slammed into his home. Three of his daughters, ages 14, 15, and 21, were killed, as was one of his nieces. The doctor wailed in grief as he spoke to the Israeli television anchor. My God, my God, what have we done? I wanted to save them, but they died of head wounds immediately. Abu Laish spoke to NPR later that year. I lost the three precious, beautiful daughters, but I can't return them back. I have five more, and I have the future. I have many good things that I can do for others. He wrote a book entitled, I Shall Not Hate. He left Gaza with his surviving children. Today, he's a professor at the University of Toronto, where I reached him. Abu Laish visited family and friends in Gaza just three months ago before the current fighting. But now, tragedy has struck again. He says that on November 7th, an Israeli airstrike demolished the home where his relatives were sheltering in the Jabalia refugee camp. 22 members of the family were killed on that bombardment. They included cousins, nephews, and nieces. I saw them just in August. I was there, and now they are gone. One niece, she is a medical doctor. She is 25 years old. She was supposed to start here. A residency soon. Most every day seems to bring a new jolt of pain, like the recent fighting around Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Israel says Hamas operated from tunnels below the medical compound. Abu Laish first went to that hospital when he was treated for rheumatic fever as a nine year old boy. So I uh, stayed at the hospital about maybe five, six days. Later, as a young doctor, he worked at Al Shifa. Abu Laish remains in touch with Israelis he's befriended, but with emotions running so high, they don't often agree these days. He urges the Israelis to value Palestinian lives as much as they value Israeli lives. Every baby is precious. Every human life is precious. And that when we start to see the other side. He sees this war as sheer tragedy, predicting nothing will be resolved. I hope the war will end. But I hope no one will celebrate victory because all are losers. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Think for a moment of the feeling you get, the tension in your shoulders when you're heading into a meeting that you think will go badly. A survey finds that many people of color have that feeling before visiting a doctor. They take extra care with their appearance 
and emotionally prepare for potential mistreatment. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. The survey was conducted by the health research organization KFF. Researchers polled a nationally representative sample of nearly 6,300 adults. The good news is that among those that had sought health care in the past three years, people reported having positive and respectful interactions with their health care providers most of the time. But the survey also uncovered troubling differences along racial and ethnic lines. Black, Hispanic, Asian, American Indian, and Alaska Native adults were much more likely than their white counterparts to report having negative interactions during healthcare visits, says Samantha Artiga of KFF. Things like a provider not listening to them, not answering a question or responding to a direct request, not prescribing pain medication that they thought they needed. For example, Twice as many Black women who'd given birth in the last decade said they'd been refused pain medications they'd thought they'd needed, compared to white women. And overall, at least a quarter of people of color said that doctors were less likely to involve them in decisions about their care. Artiga is Director of Racial Equity and Health Policy at KFF. She says these types of experiences with unfair treatment may help explain why large shares of the respondents of color who took the survey said they took certain steps to prepare for healthcare visits at least some of the time. For example, feeling like they have to dress very carefully or take a lot of care with their appearance in order to be respected and listened to by their healthcare provider. Saying that they sometimes prepare for possible insults from healthcare providers during healthcare visits. One bright spot in the findings, people of color were much more likely to report having respectful, positive interactions when their health care providers shared their racial or ethnic background. That's in line with a growing body of research that's found that patients of color are more likely to be satisfied with healthcare interactions when their doctors look like them. However, in the U.S., data show Black and Hispanic doctors remain vastly underrepresented relative to their share of the population. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This afternoon on All Things Considered, a meditation on space and life. Samantha Harvey's new novel, Orbital tells the story of six astronauts aboard the International Space Station looking down on 16 sunrises and sunsets per day. To hear about this, listen to NPR on your smartphone or smart speaker or on your radio at sunrise, sunset, or any other time. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBWAR's Morning Edition, WBWAR's Max Larkin gives us a preview of today's Capitol Hill hearing involving the presidents of Harvard and MIT. It's 825. WBUR supporters include Emerson Colonial Theater with Just For Us. Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston direct from Broadway, December 15th through 17th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. When NPR first came on the air, a set of principles guided our work. NPR will serve the individual, promote personal growth, regard differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. NPR will provide listeners with an experience that enriches and gives meaning to the human spirit. NPR will explore, investigate, and try to interpret issues of the day so listeners might better understand themselves, as well as governments, institutions, 
our world. NPR will be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, and increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society. NPR will be a service to listeners that makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and responsible citizens of their communities and the world. And that's still our purpose, work we do with you and for you. And we can only do it with your support. So please donate to the station today. NPR hosts there talking about the values that drive us every single day here on WBUR. You hear those values drive the stories you hear on WBUR every morning. That's why you know you can trust us and you turn to us to keep you informed about what you need to know about the world down to what's going on in your neighborhood. But we need your help to make sure this service continues. This is our year-end fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Amory Sievertson, letting you know that this is the penultimate day of this fundraiser, and we still have $210,000 to get to our goal. We need you to step up and support the high-quality journalism you rely on to be there for you 24-7. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, the part of the mission statement there that Aisha Roscoe, you hear her read, that really speaks to me. The idea that WBUR and NPR is making the community of listeners that count on it um, more informed, more responsible citizens. And just think about everything that you've learned about this morning in listening and, and how you take that with you through your day, how you take that with you into your community, how it informs how you move through the world, how you listen to others and uh, and kind of process their experiences and, and what that all means to you. You know that it's important. It's why you choose WBUR over other sources of news out there. And it's, it's what makes what we do so um, singular and so important to protect for that reason. So $210,000 is what we have left to raise. And what part of that can you help us with? Can you give right now, you know, $10 a month to protect WBUR going forward? Can you give $500 or or maybe $1,000 or maybe $2,000? You know, you know what's right for you. But it's important that you're there for us right now. Because, you know, Rupa, I'll tell you, I just had a hallway moment here at WBUR. The, the radio plays in the hallways. Yeah. And I have heard that story about the Palestinian doctor who was working in Israel and is now a professor at the University of Toronto. I've mm-hmm. heard that now at least once this morning, and I'm just captivated. I'm stopped in my tracks. Yeah. And I know that you out there listening have had moments like that, too. Give for those moments to protect, you know, the news and the humanity that you hear on WBUR. 1-800-909-9287. Or you can give online. Do it as generously as you can at WBUR.org. Yeah, those moments where you you hear a voice and you hear a voice saying something that's true to them and you feel a connection with them and you recognize that you are connecting with this other person on the other side of the world, maybe, with this very different experience. And you are doing that through us, because of us. We make that possible, and we care about making that possible. We want to keep that coming to you. And I won't name other 
specific other places, but we've all gone to other cities and maybe tried to turn on public radio and maybe it wasn't there or it just really didn't have a, a local angle to it. And that is what we bring here. That is what you have built here. So give. And when you give, also when you give $15 a month, you can get this jacket, this really smart jacket from Charles River Apparel. To And we'll put your money to work to bring you more of the journalism you rely on. This is a great addition to your wardrobe and you can show your WBUR, your WBUR pride. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From American Jewish World Service, Supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance. Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military continues to expand its offensive in northern and central Gaza, targeting Hamas. It's forcing more Palestinians to flee to southern Gaza, an area already crowded with displaced residents. Here's NPR's Daniel Estrin. The Israeli military says it has raided the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza for the first time, pursuing Hamas targets. Palestinian residents report Israeli troops have also advanced near Khan Yunis in central Gaza. It's a Hamas stronghold and home to the top Hamas leader in Gaza. Residents in central Gaza report heavy fighting overnight. Many fled to the southern city of Rafah, sleeping in the streets. Delegates attending the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai are expected to focus today on how countries can shift away from fossil fuels such as oil, natural gas and coal. Climate activist and former Vice President Al Gore is attending the conference. We can solve this. I'm optimistic. I think we will solve this. But we cannot play games designed to protect the obscene profits uh, of these oil and gas petrostates. Gore notes the president of the U.N. conference is also the United Arab Emirates' top oil executive. Search teams on Indonesia's Mount Merapi say 22 climbers are confirmed dead following Sunday's eruption. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The largest police union in Boston has agreed on a new contract with the city. The tentative five-year agreement from the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association now heads to the city council for a vote. The old contract expired in 2020. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has said the city won't sign the contract unless it includes significant reforms, but it's unclear what is specifically included in the contract. One of the three Palestinian college students shot in Vermont wants people to focus on the suffering in Gaza. Kanan Abdul Hamoud tells the Boston Globe he and his friends are more worried about what's going on there than their own shooting. The three students were shot last month while walking around a neighborhood in Burlington. It's being investigated as a possible hate crime. The 20-year-old is encouraging people to talk with Palestinians before talking about the war between Israel and Hamas. 
It's been just over three months since the city of Northampton installed outdoor boxes filled with an opioid overdose drug. And as Olden Bourne reports, a city health official calls the program a big success. The two Narcan cabinets are located in a city park and near a bike path. Taylor McAndrew is with Hampshire Hope, a coalition working to reduce the impacts of opiate abuse. She says the city already offered the boxes indoors in municipal buildings and other locations. The outside boxes are definitely getting more use than the indoor ones. Indoor boxes can be limited by the times that building hours are open, and so the outdoor boxes provide you know, a very low or no barrier avenue to grabbing the Narcan, so I would say much more popular and accessible just by seeing it. The city is working on an interactive map of all indoor and outdoor locations. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Celtics are out of the NBA's new in-season tournament. They lost to the Pacers 122-112 last night in Indianapolis. Near 40 today and partly cloudy, around 30 tonight, and there's a chance of less than an inch of snow overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy in mid-30s. Pockets of the South Shore and areas east of 495 may see a little more snow. Less than an inch is expected. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The presidents of Harvard and MIT will be on Capitol Hill today to address accusations they've mishandled a rise of anti-Semitism on their campuses since the October 7th attacks on Israel by Hamas. There's been a charged climate on both campuses since the war began, marked by student protests that have given rise to complaints of both anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim discrimination. WBUR education reporter Max Larkin joins us to preview the congressional hearing later this morning. Good morning, Max. Good morning, Rupa. So the leaders of MIT, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania are expected to testify at this hearing today. Can you give us some context and background, like who is calling this hearing and why these schools in particular? Yeah. So I think the central allegation from House leadership here is that these presidents of these schools in particular stood by while, quote, anti-Semitic demonstrations took place at their school since October 7th. So it's being called by the Republican-controlled House, specifically the Committee on Education and the Workforce. And as a congressional hearing group, this is in part a partisan affair. I think that's important to note. Chairwoman Virginia Fox of North Carolina said in a press release that leaders like Claudine Gay of Harvard and Sally Kornbluth of MIT offered, quote, indecision and milk toast statements instead of strong action. And they just happened, Rupa, to target the two most prominent Boston area schools along with the University of Pennsylvania, as you said. So is there evidence to support these claims? 
Yeah, well, I've covered the Harvard angle a good bit and spoken to a number of Jewish students there. And and really very, very few of them, Rupa, would say they've never heard a stereotype or anti-Jewish joke that struck them as bigoted or uncomfortable in their time there. And some do say that things have gotten worse since October 7th. I think the trickier claim is whether, as Representative Fox writes, there have been countless examples of anti-Semitic rhetoric at protests specifically. There have certainly been many pro-Palestinian rallies and vigils and walks walkouts since October. But at those, I think it's more of a debate on campus as to whether, you know, they're explicitly anti-Semitic or explicitly threatening. Okay, so how have Harvard leaders responded to the allegations? Well, President Claudine Gay, relatively new on the job, repeatedly spoke to Harvard Jewish organizations. Then in early November, she published this letter that committed the university to, quote, a robust program of education on anti-Semitism and its roots. Gay also specifically condemned what is a commonplace pro-Palestinian chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, saying that it, it sparks existential pains for members of Harvard's Jewish community. So some Harvard professors even thought that letter actually went too far in the other direction, including Jim Recht, a lecturer in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, who is himself Jewish. I see these protests as bringing us crucial messages that we should be listening to, debating, critiquing, but not condemning or punishing. So elected officials may say that Harvard acted insufficiently or too late, but I think it would be a stretch to say that they haven't done anything on anti-Semitism. And what about when it comes to the reports of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim discrimination on these campuses? Have the organizers of the hearing said that they want to address that? Well, I think that's where the partisanship comes into play, right? So because the agenda setting belongs to Republicans who will (laughs) hit these universities with any stick they can find, the framing of the hearing is entirely around anti-Semitism. That said, it is a large and diverse committee. And given that, you know, those three Palestinian students were shot in Burlington, Vermont, I I think it it would be um, wise to expect at least some questions about the other side of the coin. What else should we know about what's at stake with these hearings? Well, I think it comes in a context where high-profile donors who are upset with Harvard are speaking out and kind of implicitly threatening perhaps to withdraw future donations. This would be mainly on the subject of anti-Semitism. And then you have federal officials uh, with the Department of Education who recently launched a civil rights investigation into allegations of anti-Semitism at Harvard, along with other schools, including nearby Wellesley College. The complaint at Harvard seems to center on this video that made the rounds showing an Israeli student apparently being pushed during a pro-Palestinian protest outside Harvard Business School, though I think it's fair to say there are other angles of the confrontation that show that student stepping on and over protesters who were lying on the ground photographing them. I think we're still awaiting the results of that investigation. Okay. And how about MIT? It seems like there's been less drama there. Yeah, it's funny. MIT has been quieter. I spoke to a few people on campus who were sort of surprised that President Kornbluth is going to Washington. But they did have at least one fiery protest where some students alleged that pro-Palestinian classmates blocked them from getting to class in early November. The participants were asked to leave and those who stayed were suspended, though only from non-academic activities. MIT and Harvard, of course, are both private institutions. And so they have a little bit of latitude when it comes to their response to protests. But they also have free speech principles that they want to uphold as universities. And they have reputations to protect. Okay. WBUR education reporter Max Larkin, thanks again. Thanks for having me.
You're with WB1 on a Tuesday morning. In 20 minutes, the latest on the new offensive by Israel in Gaza's second largest city. We'll get an update from the BBC NewsHour. It's 842. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Radio Boston's Tiziana Deering there talking about journalism being under economic pressure and declining. That's happening at a time when real journalism has never been more important to our communities and our country. That's why your support of WBUR is so important as we wrap up our year-end fundraiser. This is the second-to-last day, and we have $210,000 left to raise. A group of generous WBUR listeners know that you want to be part of getting us to that goal, and you want to have as much impact as possible, so they have offered to match whatever you give dollar for dollar. But that is only available until 9 or until we raise $5,000, whichever comes first, this will double your impact for WBUR. So act now by going to WBUR.org or by calling 1-800-909-9287. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi here with Amory Sievertson of our Endless Thread podcast. Good morning, Rupa. And yes, 17 minutes left. Ooh, really just 16 minutes left to have your contribution go twice as far. And why not take advantage of that, right? You work hard for your money. You care how you spend it. You're, you know, you're, you, you want to put it towards things that you know uh, it will really make a difference towards. And WBUR is that in your life. Everything that you've heard on WBUR this morning was paid for by other listeners, by the contributions of other listeners. So join them and and have your money go twice as far right now. Make that impact as great as it can be, whether it's, you know, $10 a month that feels right for you to give right now. Or if you can give that larger gift, it will be doubled as well. If you can give $500, it will become $1,000. If you can give $1,000, it will become $2,000 for WBUR just because you did it right now in the next 15 minutes. So do it for everything you've heard on WBUR. Do it for everything that you're going to hear the rest of 2023 and beyond. Know that that was money well spent and that it went twice as far because you did it right now. Call one 800 909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. It is now at 15 minutes left to go for you for, to double your impact for WBUR to help us get to this goal to raise $210,000. We are committed to always being there for you with the information you need to know. This is when we remind you that you have a part to play in all of this. This is not a passive service. WBUR is something we all do together. This is our year year-end fundraiser. This is the home stretch. You can play a big part in getting us where we need to be. Then you can sit back and listen and know that you made everything you're hearing possible. That is such a good feeling. You will 
really, it will really, really add to your day, add to your listening, add to how you feel about your community, because this connects you to your community. This is how you act with your community and enrich your community. So as you think about your year-end giving and supporting the organizations that are important to you, we know WBUR is among those groups. You were going to give anyway. Do it now because your contribution will be doubled. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And you know, I can't promise that anything else in your day is going to be doubled. <laughs> if you go buy lunch later today, I can't promise that they're going to give you double the food that you want. <laughs> you know, if you whatever work you put into your day today, I can't promise that that's going to go twice as far, though I hope it does for your sake. <laughs> but I can assure you that if you make your gift in the next 14 minutes now to WBUR, that will be doubled. Thanks to these generous members of our Murrow Society, people who could give a little bit more and have stepped up to encourage you to give as generous as you can right now because it will go twice as far. And you know, public radio is really a team sport. We're here doing our part, bringing you all of the news and information. I want you to be able to kick back knowing that you have done your part for WBUR and everyone who counts on it when your money went twice as far. Your $200 became $400. Your $1,000 became $2,000. Call 1-800-909-9287 or give at WBUR.org. And thank you. Double thank you. (laughs) We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Today, the Supreme Court hears arguments in an obscure tax case with potentially trillions of dollars in tax consequences for the federal budget. It is a case that has tax law specialists both gobsmacked and alarmed, as NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg tells us in this report. The 16th Amendment to the Constitution was enacted in 1913 to establish Congress's power to collect federal income taxes. But the century-old legal understanding of that amendment is now being challenged by Charles and Kathleen Moore. Backed by anti-regulatory groups, they're specifically challenging attacks on offshore earnings that helped fund President Trump's huge corporate tax cut in 2017. The Moors contend they've never actually made money from their foreign investment in an Indian company. Yes, they can see their investment has increased in value by well over a half million dollars. But they maintain that because they've not yet received any actual money, they are being unconstitutionally taxed on unrealized income. Some of the facts the Moors have put forth are disputed, but importantly, this case is widely viewed by advocates on both sides as a preventive strike against any wealth tax of the kind proposed by Senator Elizabeth Warren, not that anyone thinks such a tax has a real chance of passing in Congress. Still, if the Moors were to win, the federal government could be forced to pay back billions of dollars in corporate tax collections, and the effects for lots of other tax provisions could be profound. Paul Ryan was the Republican Speaker of the House who shepherded the 2017 tax law through the House, including the provision before the Supreme Court today. Yeah, as a person who drafted that, I'm not for a wealth tax, but I think if you use this as the argument to spike a wealth tax, you're going to basically get rid of, I don't know, a third of the tax code. 
The Moors are portrayed as sympathetic plaintiffs in Supreme Court briefs and a video posted on the webpage of the Anti-Regulatory Competitive Enterprise Institute. Here's Charles Moore describing how he invested $40,000 in his friend Ravi Agarwal's power tool business in India 18 years ago, an investment now worth more than a half million dollars. If Indian farmers could be made more productive, I bringing power tools to them that are suitable for their types of farms. That would be great. Lawyers for the Moors describe the couple as playing no active role in the company. But documents disclosed by the tax publication Tax Notes show that Charles Moore was far more involved in the company's management than he let on. Records show that he served on the board of the company for five years, that he was reimbursed for thousands of dollars in travel expenses, and that he provided the company short-term infusions of cash that were never used but repaid 60 days later with 12% interest. George Callis, who served for 15 years as a Republican staffer for tax writing committees in Congress, sees all this as rather suspicious. Why would you loan a company money for 60 days, have it sit in a bank account, never be used, and then they repay it with a, with a big interest rate, unless you were just trying to find a way to get money out of the company without calling it that? All of this gets to the critical question posed by the Moors. The tax was imposed by Congress as a one-time payment to cover the transfer from one international tax rule to another. Under the old system, if you earned foreign income overseas in a foreign corporation in which you had a controlling interest, you wouldn't have to pay taxes on those earnings until you brought the profits back to the United States. Congress saw that as a perverse incentive to keep profits offshore, and by some estimates there was as much as $3 trillion in shielded offshore profits at the time. In order to move to a new system, Congress decided to impose a very low tax rate, one-time transition tax. The Moors paid their one-time tax of $15,000 and then challenged it in court, arguing that it's an unconstitutional tax on unrealized income, not an income tax. Ilya Shapiro of the conservative Manhattan Institute wrote a brief siding with the Moors. They never saw income. It never hit their bank account. They never got cash. They never got a check. Their stake in the company uh, increased, but they did not get any income. But George Callis, who with Speaker Ryan drafted and steered the 2017 tax bill through the Republican House, says the more tax is realized income in just the same way that real estate and other business partnerships are taxed, whether or not the income is distributed. Similarly, he says Congress has used various devices to prevent corporations from setting up what are called corporate pocketbooks to escape paying taxes. So in the international context, I'm going to set up a corporation in the Cayman Islands, and I'm going to contribute money capital to it. And that corporation is going to make investments around the world. And as long as the profit stays in my Cayman subsidiary, I would never have to pay any tax, right? So we have something in the tax code that Congress enacted in 1962 that prevents that. In other words, it's not just the Moore's one-time tax at risk in this case. Remember, this is a tax that is expected to yield $340 billion by 2027, and the lion's share of those taxes have already been collected. 
What's more, various other tax regimes have been enacted to prevent tax dodges by the rich, and those, too, could be at risk, according to Callas. In the Moores case, they owned 11% of the Indian company, and under federal law, that's considered a controlling interest, meaning that the owners have influence over the timing of any distributions and dividends, a leverage that Congress wanted to rein in to prevent tax avoidance. So this may be a $15,000 case, but it has big trillion-dollar implications, And tax law experts from conservative to liberal warn that if the Supreme Court were to strike down this tax provision, the effects would be disastrous. The court's not just playing with fire, says Republican George Callas. It's playing with enriched uranium, and they don't even know they could blow up a large portion of the tax code. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KF.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our daily podcast, The Common, talking about the strong foundation of listener support we need you to be part of. You've been listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Amory Sievertson. We're in our year-end fundraiser here on WBUR. We're asking you to think about how we help you make sense of the world every single day and to act. It's easy to forget because it's so easy to listen and be informed by WBUR every morning. But what you're hearing takes so many resources to bring you. We still have... $210,000 to raise this fundraiser. And again, this fundraiser ends tomorrow. We need your help to get to our goal in order to make sure we have the funds necessary to keep bringing you everything you depend on from us. Including podcasts like The Common, including Morning Edition, including Radio Boston. There is so much here for you. And we want to keep bringing it to you, especially now when there is a dollar for dollar match on the table. This is an incredible time to show your support for WBUR, but it is only available until 9 o'clock, and that is less than four minutes away. So we need you to act now. Go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 Here's Amory. There's so much that you hear on WBUR that you think is just priceless, right? I mean, a story that that really just stops you in your tracks or moves you to tears or makes you think about the world a little bit differently. Um, you know, just the truth, having having the truth and the facts, like that's something that feels so priceless. And yet it takes the team at WBUR. It takes reporters, producers, audio engineers, editors, fact checkers, everyone here that, that, that makes it all seem effortless. But we put a lot of heart and soul into what we do here because 
because we know that the truth matters. We know that it matters to you. It's why you choose WBUR. And that costs money. It costs money to to bring you WBUR and, and really to protect that and make it a free resource for everyone, mm-hmm. for you to know that every time you turn on WBUR, there isn't going to be a paywall that's, uh, you know, separating you from the truth. And that goes for you. That goes for your neighbor. That goes for the person on the other side of the country that relies on our national programming that we bring you here on WBUR. All of that takes resource, but it's all possible when you chip in. We have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table right now for the next two minutes. That means that if you can pitch in, say, $100, that's going to become $200. If you can pitch in $500, that'll become $1,000 for WBUR. So do it right now. It's too important that we hear from you and that we we protect the truth. We protect the storytelling that you've really come to rely on. one 800 909 287 is the number to call or go to WBUR.org and give as generously as you can because it will be doubled. Join all the other listeners who have already stepped up to make sure this service will be there for you and your community and your kids and your grandkids for years to come. They have done that for you. The community of listeners behind WBUR, they have done that for you. And this is when you join them and make it possible for other people, including people who maybe can't give right now, because these are challenging times. And it's more important than ever to make sure there is a a reliable source of information for your community. And it is more important than ever to support facts. Supporting WBUR is a really meaningful thing to do because also WBUR is a news organization, but I keep saying the word, we're also a community, a community you connect with and feel a part of, especially when you give and support WBUR. Listeners built WBUR into what it is now. Listeners keep us a pillar in your community. They depend on us. You depend on us. This is when we remind you that that support needs to be continual in order to keep this service coming to you at the level you expect. So act now by going to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It is such an honor to host Morning Edition for you every single morning and to be your companion every single morning. But we need your help to continue doing that for you. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and show how much you value WBUR when WBUR needs you the most. During this season of giving, when you are giving to the organizations you value, you know that WBUR is among them. So act now, and thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.